Uh, this is podcast 297, titled Bright Day, and the cast is dedicated to Paul Walker, rector of Christ Church, Charlottesville, partly because of the concluding music. Now, the um, um, phenomenon that uh, has been hitting me very strongly, like um, meteors striking the moon, has been this uh, fact that there are so many um, powerful and explicitly Christian works of popular art out there that I, in my historical snobbery or in my simply false narrative of movies in particular and pop music, simply missed. I simply it's as if they didn't exist. I'm looking uh, in my shelf right now at a books that I've had since I was 12 years old. Uh, let's see, concerning there's one on Sergei Eisenstein, and there's one on Ingmar Bergman, and there's one on Tony Richardson, and there's one on uh, Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, there's one, believe it or not, yes, there's Federico Fellini, and... Um, the uh, point of that is that I just thought that I knew everything, and it comes to find out that I knew very little. And in this period of my life, at age uh, 60, uh, almost 69, I find kind of what uh, gaps are there. And the why of these works of art come up? It's as if these <clears throat> works of art, I've already talked about one called Journey into Light from 1951 with Sterling Hayden and Vivica Lindfors, and I've talked about one called The First Legion, which my friend Ryan Alvey finally saw today and was so touched by about Jesuits uh, with an extraordinary uh, redemptive finish, also from 1951, the First Legion, and uh, there are others, many others. And now today I'm going to talk about one called Bright Day, a movie, you won't be surprised, from 1951, but a major Hollywood film. Every one of the movies that I'm talking about, these are not independent movies or they're Christian movies in quotations for a niche market. No, not whatsoever. These, these, these were all done as major popular presentations. And what is shocking is that, in, in a way, it's as if they were, um, they were suppressed. They were de facto. They were de facto suppressed because no one's ever heard of them. Uh, I, I think it has to do with the fact that they were not... Um, in fact, they were very subversive, but they were not what the world thought of as being subversive or beatnik or uh, the, the very people that hated Thornton Wilder for being too universal. These were universal pictures of the human predicament with a strong element of the intervention of the gospel. And uh, there was a um, powerful... Uh, um, um, counterforce that has reduced them to simply not even footnotes. You can't even find them, although all these movies now you can find, although not on DVD. They will come out, but eventually. And I wonder, why is this happening? Why are all these works coming to out of nowhere? Well, I think it probably has something to do with the, the, the world in which we live, and in particular, the current president that has... Um, his uh, ascension, uh, ascendancy has carried with it such a, a remarkably... Um, exploding heads on all sides, such a phenomenon of uh, kind of um, illumination of the way things are, in my opinion at least, that uh, 
no wonder that that on the one hand you have all sorts of people you worshipped who are really um, seem almost like ciphers, at least in the arts, and all sorts of things that you didn't even know about are suddenly coming up. It's as if a light is shining, like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when the flying saucer passes over Richard Dreyfus in the in the in the working uh, the van, his van, and uh, his truck. And, and the light illuminates everything around him. It was thoroughly in darkness. It was something about the times in which we live, which are either, you can call them, um, uh, you can call them illuminating of, of the true future, or you can call them illuminating of the of, of fascism, or you can call them illuminating of uh, the powers that be, or you can whatever side of it you're on. You'll have to admit that something very unusual is happening. And I speak of someone who's always been interested in. Um, in what was going on around since little, and this seems unique, but um, one of the things that apparently is happening right now is that all these these works that I've certainly never heard of are hitting me, as I say, like a, a meteor shower on the moon. And I want to talk to you actually about two of them very briefly because they concern the um, uh, the uh, transaction, the um, situation, no, the action in the Christian gospel that is uh, uniquely uh, gospel and the world doesn't understand, but all people who've ever been in love do, who've ever been loved. And the, so really people, if they can just take the narratives of this world and the context in which we're in and look at the way people really act in love, how they receive it and how they uh, give it, uh, will find these works utterly accessible and resonant with their true reality. And the work I'm going to talk about, there are two. One is called Bright Day, a movie that was uh, released in 1951 by, um, uh, uh, you know, The Lion, Warner Brothers, is it? The Lion, uh, and uh, a, a movie, uh, a major Hollywood film, though, not a niche movie, and a, uh, a short story that was then turned into a very successful play in 1907 that was then turned into a successful movie in England entitled, are you ready for this? The Passing of the Third Floor Back. I'm going to talk about these two works of art, which have to do with imputation and the power and experience of imputation, which no one's ever heard of, except people who were right then, living in 1907 or 1953, and these works have been completely uh, glossed over. Now, I think the devil has suppressed them, to be honest with you. Bright Day is about a classroom of African-American children in an elementary school in uh, the Deep South in which a new teacher played by the famous actress Dorothy Dandridge, the principal of the elementary school being played by Harry Belafonte, his first movie, a class of African-American children in which one child, his name is C.T., is alienated, difficult, angry, impossible, and determined to be an beginner on all fronts. He is an alienated 12-year-old, maybe 13-year-old boy. And uh, <clears throat> this one teacher determines by the power of imputation to um, love him in such a way that he can hear and feel and experience and bring him to a place of encouragement, hopefulness, and delight, and even generosity and love, rather than anger, um, living in, as she says one time, living in a kind of, in a hole, um, living in a little kind of cocoon, coming out of himself with love. And what is so amazing about the movie is it was major Hollywood film, as I said, and yet it doesn't refer except once in a scene in Sunday school because his teacher in the elementary school also happens to be his Sunday school teacher on Sundays in which uh, color and race is referred to. <clears throat> it is referred to once. And then the doctor, there's a key scene in which a doctor who looks funny, he looks like an escapee from uh, from. Uh, 
uh, Rebel Without a Cause. He looks like James, a James Dean character, believe it or not. It's a, an extraordinarily odd miscasting of a doctor who happens to be white, who's dear and absolutely loyal and faithful and good. But nevertheless, it is a movie entirely about African-American uh, children and a teacher and a principal in which the universals of how do you get through to a hardened, angry child, an alienated child, Almost autistic, but not. There's probably a word for what this child is because he has outbursts occasionally. We use words for that now. How do you do it? And she does it, and she succeeds in the connection with a terrible trauma. Uh, a, a terrible trauma is introduced into the movie, a trauma of destruction and uh, loss, and also a beautiful metaphor, which is well said and not overdone and not overly previewed, of a, of a moth and a chrysalis and a butterfly. Now, how did this movie ever get to be made uh, with major stars and for everybody? Uh, well, it, it's about the real thing, and it has nothing to do with secondary identities. Zebra, nothing. And that is why this movie uh, is about the universals, which we're talking about. How did it ever come? Uh, how, how did it come to be made? Well, apparently the people who made it didn't think it was odd. But um, today, looking at it, it seems like a totally alternative vision of what people would wish to know about the nature of hope. And um, that in itself, um, there's something going on that I don't understand, that this movie would have certainly come up. After all these years of, I'm, again, I'm looking at all these, I'm looking at all these, uh, Rosalini, you know, I'm looking at all these uh, books over there, and uh, none of them ever uh, mention Emmett Lavery. Emmett Lavery wrote Ryan, are you listening? Emmett Lavery wrote the script for The First Legion, and Emmett Lavery is the one who wrote the script for this movie, Bright Day. Now, there's another story. This is an author named Jerome K. Jerome. Well, you're going to laugh. I mean, this is the parade of unknown authors, but it wasn't always so. Again, how come? How in the world did PC suddenly hear about Jerome K. Jerome? I've heard of his, quote, famous, celebrated classic, humorous classic entitled Three Men in a Boat. It's sort of, I've always heard of it somewhere. I never read it. But <clears throat> I had this gut feeling that there was something more there. And well, it turns out that Jerome K. Jerome, who wrote in the uh, first, the, the first uh, three to two decades of the 20th century in England um, was actually the son of an evangelical preacher and was dealing with God first negatively and then later abreactively and ironically and finally uh, synthetically dealing with the Christian God throughout his entire life. And a great deal of his work is directly Christian. His last novel is called All Roads Lead to Calvary. <laughs> Are you kidding? Um, but he... Um, his great success in his day was not, in fact, Three Men in a Boat, but it was, in fact, a, a, a story which was then turned into a play entitled The Passing of the Third Floor Back. Now, the reference is to a third-floor room in a London boarding house with a, a group of maybe 12 very rather not very connected uh, lost souls, uh, not really deeply in the um, lower depths, Gogol sense, but not happy individuals who have no community and no hope really except imaginary and how a stranger comes into this boarding house and takes the room, it passes, the room is passed to him that is known as the third floor back room and over a period of time, three acts but maybe two months, uh, he imputes to each of these quietly desperate middle class individuals in this uh, boarding house, a different vision of themselves, which is to their great shock and enlightenment and also enormous relief by which each one of them is gradually saved. 
each one of them comes into contact with their, their you might say, their destiny. That's Paula's expression. Their destiny is the children of God. And each one kind of comes into their truth, the true sense, because he sees them as God sees them. He sees them as forgiven sinners, not as people to be just lashed upon and who are really totally pathetically self-absorbed. And uh, it's a powerful picture of a Christ figure redeeming all these individuals. And unlike the lower depths, it has a deep hope. It is not kind of a, a, a fake. It all, remember the lower depths, the stranger who visits the priest ends up uh, kind of uh, end up uh, helping everybody, but it all kind of falls apart at the end uh, in a very distressing and, 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 and people would say nuanced. I would say shoot yourself in the foot ending. This has an ending which is uh, both open-ended, hopeful, and profound. Now, who in the world's ever heard of it? And the movie, the, the play was so successful in 1907 that it made Jerome K. Jerome a um, a, 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 a very well-known person in Britain and to some extent in America, and uh, he uh, earned enough money from it to be um, have enough money for the rest of his life. And then it was made into a movie. You can see all of these. You can get uh, the passing of the third floor back on um, a PDF. Just look it up, and you'll get a PDF of it like that on the internet. By the way, Bright Day is available on uh, iTunes and in other ways. It's easy to get Bright Day, but. The Passing of the Third Lower Back is easily available as a PDF, and then it was made into a movie starring Conrad Veidt, a very famous German actor and other English actors. And the movie is wooden. I've seen it. It's a little bit stagey, but it's basically the, the, the play, and it's actually very touching and good when you think about it. And um, that, you can just look it up right now on YouTube, and you'll see you'll see maybe a Russian uh, download of it. But there it is, The Passing of the Third Floor Back. Now, what does this all mean? Well, it means first two things, that imputation is as obvious in reality. Everybody who's ever been the recipient of imputation knows that this is the way life goes. It's in, when, you know, what does she say in Mrs. Skeffington, the Betty Davis character, uh, by uh, Elizabeth von Arnhem? Uh, the Betty Davis character has had such a vain, flaky persona, and yet she's touched by the love of her alienated but now truly faithful and loyal husband. And she says to him, her to herself, a woman is only truly, a woman is most beautiful when she is loved. A woman is most beautiful. I think it's a woman is only truly beautiful when she is loved. And that is uh, the Betty Davis slash Elizabeth and Arnhem Hollywood way of saying the exact same thing that uh, imputation says. And you know it in your marriage, you know it in your relationships, you know it in your church, you know it in uh, those relationships that are positive and helpful and good. And, and that's what is so powerful about uh, these, uh, both uh, the bright day and the passing of the third floor back. And it, what makes them universal, they transcend. I mean, as I said, no one's ever heard of a movie called Bright Day in 1953 that takes place in a segregated elementary school in Alabama uh, in which the racial question, while it is not uh, ignored, it comes up once in a very important discussion, uh, kids' discussion in, uh, in a Sunday school class, uh, the racial question is uh, subsumed under or transcended by the universal issue of a little troubled, angry, edgy, suspicious kid who desires only one thing in life, which is the uh, committed and utterly uh, unconditional forgiving love of someone else outside him, and he receives it, and everything changes. Everything changes. The movie is a, is a heartwarming, but in the best sense, true picture of what the gospel ultimately gives, and so is Jerome K. Jerome's uh, quite devastating play. 
Well, for some reason, it's probably just me, but uh, these works are coming at me like uh, uh, meteors on uh, the surface of the moon, and I'm probably going to have one for you next week, too. But I hope you've enjoyed it, and now we're going to listen to a section of uh, a great 70s uh, anthem uh, which for which I dedicated the podcast to Paul, and it is called You're the Biggest Part of Me. <laughs> 